when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be talking about the first week of the 2017 general election campaign and the battle ahead for Labour. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, chief political correspondent Jim Pickard, political reporter Henry Mance, plus commentator Miranda Green and poster Matt Singh. Thank you all for joining. So for those who didn't catch our special general election episode this week, we're having a general election. On Tuesday, Theresa May stepped outside Downing Street to announce she was going to the country and on Wednesday, the House of Commons voted for it. The Tories have hit the campaign trail with a message very similar to 2015, strong, secure leadership with us and a so-called coalition of chaos with everyone else. So what have we learned from the first week? George Parker, we've just about got over the shock of there being a general election, despite Theresa May saying over and over again there wouldn't be one, and then taking a walk in the hills of Wales with her husband and deciding, well, actually, let's get a big stonking majority. What are the themes that have become apparent about this campaign in the first three days? Well, you've alluded to the fact that it's starting to sound a little bit like the 2015 Tory election campaign already. No surprise there, of course, because Sir Linton Crosby has been brought in to run the campaign and the same themes are coming over. I've just been watching Theresa May give a stump speech in Maidenhead and her constituency. A toothpaste factory. Indeed. Strong and stable leadership. Strengthen my hand for Brexit. You can substitute Brexit, by the way, for the long-term economic plan. This is the, the long-term Brexit plan. The vision beyond Brexit. The whole thing is about stability, security... And of course, as you just alluded to there, building up the threat of the other. In this case, instead of Ed Miliband, we've got an even better target for Linton Crosby in the shape of Jeremy Corbyn. Matting, tell us about the fundamentals. Where are we at the beginning of this campaign? You know, we've seen polls this week that put the Tories a good 20 plus points ahead. Theresa May's 39 points ahead of Jeremy Corbyn in terms of who would make the best prime minister. Tell me why I'm wrong that this is not a foregone conclusion. Well... You never want to say never, but at this stage, the leads, as you just said, in the polls that the Conservatives had are larger than the net polling errors in 2015, 1992 and 1970 put together. So it looks as though if Labour want to do at all well in this election, they need not to hope that public opinion is being mismeasured by an implausible amount, but they need to change public opinion, so they need to have a good campaign. Now, historically, there's been a limit to how much effect campaigns have actually had, but this is a slightly odd election in the sense we've had a short parliament. It wasn't expected, the election, by many people at all, certainly not by a lot of voters. And so as people go from mid-term thinking into now election thinking, it's quite possible that changes. They start paying more attention, they start thinking about things differently. So the chances of things changing are perhaps a bit higher than normal. 
The question is, will voters punish the Conservatives at all for calling this election? This is a narrative Labour have been trying to build up. Theresa May, you can't trust a word she says. And, you know, it's the third year in a row we have the 2015 election, the EU referendum, we've got the local elections, the, the mayoral elections, and now a general election. In any sense, will voters just say, I'm as... Brenda from Bristol said this week it's just too much politics. There's certainly a risk of that with some people. I mean, when you have a number of elections in a row or major votes in a row, you can get voter fatigue. If you look at back to 1974, 1975, you had two elections and then the first EU referendum, and in each case the turnout went down. So that is possibly a concern. If you actually ask voters, not so much Brenda from Bristol, but the people in polls, they do seem to be fairly enthusiastic about having an election. I mean, there's clearly across party lines for having it. The caveat that, of course, polls often get people who are more interested in politics, so maybe they're keen on having an election. Hard to say. But it doesn't seem as though people are particularly hostile to it. If there was a low turnout, my instinct would be that that would be more likely to hurt Labour than Conservatives. It's difficult to say in terms of turnout because, in general, the sorts of demographics that vote for the Conservatives are likely to turn out than demographics that vote for Labour. However, if you were to get a high turnout, that means the average person becomes likely to vote than they would otherwise be. It doesn't necessarily follow that the less likely people to vote, their likelihood increases more. If you look at 1992, for example, highest in the last 40 years, the Conservative-owned vote share didn't go down from the previous two elections, whereas in 2001, which was the lowest turnout and the biggest drop in turnout in the history of the Universal franchise, was a Labour landslide. So, Mm. yes, that can certainly happen, but not necessarily. So Miranda Green, the big story of this election we think might be something to do with the Liberal Democrats because, as we've heard, the Tory Labour thing looks relatively straightforward here. There might be some unexpected things that come along the way. But this is all of Tim Farron's Christmases come early by having this election and his usual tiggerish persona has gone into the atmosphere ever since this election was called and the Liberal Democrats have gained thousands of new members and seem very enthusiastic. But should there be a cap on our expectations of how well the Lib Dems could do. I think there definitely should be a cap on it. And in a sense, one of the problems the Lib Dems are going to have to solve in the next couple of weeks is how they play the expectations game. Because you talk to people who say, well, this is fantastic. You know, the Liberal Democrats have the chance to become the main opposition party and you have to sort of slightly apply an ice pack to their heads. I think that they are quite hopeful. Clearly 2015 was an utter disaster for the Lib Dems. So they would hope to recover to not just a respectable position, but one in which they can actually make a contribution in the House of Commons. Because in a sense, this probably isn't a change election. But one of the things that could change is the makeup of the opposition benches. And that will materially change the debate in the Commons over not just Brexit, but a lot of these other domestic policy issues that are in the ether, the school funding crisis, state of the NHS, which is a concern to many. So I think it's not just that they want to rediscover Lib Dem pride and bump up the numbers. I think they think they genuinely have a role to play as a moderate centre-left force because Labour has left the stage in that respect. But I think there is a ceiling on it. They, for example, will be worried that UKIP is so dramatically on the slide because if so many UKIP voters are going back to the Tories, that could hurt them in those Lib Dem versus Tory seats, which they need to recapture after losing them in 2015 so dramatically. 
It seems that getting above the 20-ish plus mark feels like a place that could be quite doable when you look at metropolitan areas that will very remain, then plus maybe a few rural seats as well. And also the Liberal Democrats can focus a lot more now because they're not going to try and run a much bigger campaign like they did in 2015 because they're not trying to defend 50 seats, they're trying to defend nine. I think they would hope to pick off a few Labour seats in those university towns, places like Cambridge, which is the smallest swing they would need to retake a seat. And certainly... Some of those Tory-facing seats in the southwest of London, like Vince Cable's seat of Twickenham, which where he's going to restand, they'd hope to take that again. In the southwest, they don't seem as depressed as you would expect by the fact that the southwest voted leave. They think that there is potential for comeback in a couple of those seats, possibly. But you need to remember also that Lib Dems lost a lot of seats in Scotland, and the prospects there are very poor. Come to Scotland in a moment. The thing is, George, the Tories seem to be focusing on this idea you wrote about this week, which is vote Farron, get Corbyn, because there is a thing. <laughs> yes. There is yeah. a thing with Jeremy Corbyn that it's kicking a dog while it's down. Essentially, is that he's not in a commanding position. His message doesn't seem to have too much cut. We're going to talk about that later. So there is a focus on the Liberal Democrats because that seems to be where the momentum is at present. Well, I think that's right, and that's the other part of the Lyndon Crosby campaign that was so successful back in 2015. The idea that any vote not for the Conservatives was a vote for chaos and a coalition at which Ed Miliband, in this case, would have been at the helm. I think this is one of the reasons why the Liberal Democrats have been quite interesting at the first week of the campaign, making a point they don't aspire to be in government. This was a party which was in government only two years ago, don't forget, but want to be an effective opposition. And you have Lib Dem after Lib Dem politician turning up saying, there's absolutely no way Jeremy Corbyn can be Prime Minister. Therefore, it's safe to vote for us to get an effective opposition. The limit of our ambition this time is to be an effective opposition. I think that's a very effective message. And just incidentally, it's one of the reasons why moderate Labour MPs, they'll come up with exactly the same message on the doorstep. Don't worry, Jeremy can't become Prime Minister, but I'm a good local MP. Vote for me. Forget all about Jeremy. Yeah, I think the question of MPs running on their own personal records is something that parties in difficult situations often try. And I know the Lib Dems often tried that in a lot of cases last time. Whether it will work or not, I mean, individual personal votes can make a difference and in close seats they can change the result but particularly for the main two parties the national swings are going to be driving a lot of it who do you think are going to be the main figures of this campaign george last time it was a lot of david cameron a lot of george osborne sprinklings of boris johnson here and there a lot of ed Miliband and ed balls mm. this time we've seen obviously a lot of Theresa may and i think she's clearly going to be at the center of it amber rudd as well mm. seems to be popping up on the labor side very much jeremy corbyn and john mcdonnell i think is there anyone else to watch out for well i think you're right I have to pick out amber rudd i think she's going to be quite a big figure in the campaign she was one of the first people fielded by Theresa may to go out into the broadcasters after the announcement was made and Amber Rubb was very keen to point out that she was one of the first people to know about the secret about the election of course. Um, <laughs> Which voters I'm uh, sure really care about. Well, well, in, well indeed. So I think you picked up the right people there on the Tory side. I think the problem the Labour Party are going to have is that their narrow field of people that they can deploy and we had Dawn Butler on Labour frontbencher doing a disastrous series of interviews on the radio and television this week actually and it gives you an idea of the weakness of the people that Jeremy Corbyn can deploy on his side and I think actually it's one of the factors that will play into the advantage of the Liberal Democrats in this campaign there'll be a load of people that people might have partially forgotten about but are coming back so people like Vince Cable obviously Ed Davey, Ed Davey as well of course the fact that Nick, again, fact that Nick Clegg is still yeah. there and I think Miranda's right to say that you should be realistic about what the Lib Dems can achieve in this election but the point is that it's a seven week campaign we all think it's going to be very 
boring. Where is the excitement and the action going to be? Where is the media going to focus? I think the one story that we'll all be interested in will be the Lib Dem story, which Rand is probably about to say is a double-edged sword for the Lib Dems. Yes, I am, George. Mm. Absolutely well anticipated because this has happened to the Lib Dems before and it's something that I, as someone with a former allegiance to the Lib Dems, worry about. They're not brilliant at taking an opportunity when the eyes of the nation swivel onto them momentarily. If you think back to the 2010 election, after Clegmania, the bubble burst and their poll ratings went back down again and they actually lost seats on polling day. And it was partly because there was this sense that the nation's attention had been captured for the Lib Dems and they really didn't have much more in the tank. What were they then going to tell the nation? So I'm quite worried on their behalf about that, actually. And also I think there's a danger in some of these coalition figures coming back because already they're being trapped in broadcast interviews into trying to justify their role in government and almost inviting the voters to admit they got it wrong in 2015 and to apologise to them through the ballot box, which is not a good look. I think the thing is the Liberal Democrats probably could do with a big dose of new talent as well because, as George was saying, seeing 73-year-old Vince Cable, obviously a substantial political figure, but someone who's been around the tracks for a while, Ed Davey, Simon Hughes, all these figures who have served for a long time. It well, feels... and they, they need some women, and they have got women selected in some of these target seats, thank goodness, because at the moment it's very embarrassing, eight men and one woman who just won a by-election. Indeed. Matt, do you think there's any chance the Tory campaign is going to get too nasty? Because we were talking before, it's a classic Linton Crosby campaign of the dog whistle message, which is this coalition of chaos instability. I'm sure immigration will arrive at some point, as will economic stability as well. But the key thing is we've heard about this, we've talked about this before on this podcast. At Conservative HQ, they've got a whole cellar full of files on Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and things they've said. And they've spent the past two years going through every press clipping, every TV interview that he said, and the comments, where to begin, the IRA, Hezbollah, Jerry Adams, it just goes on and on and on. Is there a danger they might go too far with that and it actually rebounds and people could feel sorry for Jeremy Corbyn? Possibly, yes. People think back to these situations like perhaps 1983, for example, when Michael Foote was criticised a lot. I mean, it's hard really to know how people are going to react until they do it. Can things go too far? Yes, they can. Maybe in that way it's hard to say because I'm trying to think of a situation where a leader was unpopular and they were seen to go after him too much. Certainly what's going to matter as far as that goes, when these attacks, because we all know to one extent or another it's going to come, what effect that then has on these, what what I've been calling the INLBs, the people who say I'm normally Labour but, and this is something that's come back from Labour people who have been on doorsteps, but you see it in Vox Pops and in focus groups and there's evidence of it in the the polls as well, a lot of 2015 Labour voters now saying undecided, what effect is it going to have on them? If quite a lot of them think, okay, I'll come back, and then Labour can do better than they seem to be doing at the moment. But if they don't, then it's really looking grim. And what is the one thing, is there something you think that we haven't thought of or isn't apparent that could change things significantly from where they are now in terms of each of the parties standing in the leadership numbers? Well, in terms of the way the leaders are perceived, that is hugely important because that is probably the single biggest predictor of how people actually vote. In fact, often it's been more accurate than the top lines in the opinion polls. A campaign that goes bad if one person makes a particularly bad slip-up or anything comes to light that can compromise the good points that a leader seen as having could have a major impact. But obviously that's impossible to predict. That's what we've got to watch for. 
And finally, George, I don't want to spend long talking about this since this is the media talking about the media here, <laughs> but TV debates. We had these in the 2010 election, the 2015 election, and Theresa May has come off the block by saying, actually, no, I'm not going to do TV debates. And from her point of view, of course, it's the right decision because she's so far ahead and she either gives Jeremy Corbyn some kind of leadership credentials by standing beside her, but more importantly, she would give Tim Farron a national presence that he doesn't have. You know, most people probably still have no idea idea who Tim Farron is. Do you think she'll end up having to cave on that? If she does, I think she'll cave on her own terms. Maybe there'll be some sort of halfway house, some sort of half question time format. I don't know. I suspect in the end she will do something where she ends up on a platform with Tim Farron and Jeremy Corbyn. But I think this is always massively overdone by the media. The fact is, as you say, she's going to play this completely safety first, this campaign. It's hers to lose. We've already seen the pattern of it this week, her going off on visits which are barely announced to the media. In helicopters. Take, in helicopters to golf courses in Bolton, taking very few media questions, saying exactly the same thing on the stump over and over again. She won't take any risks. But I think probably in the end she will do something, but it will be the bare minimum. The Labour Party was just as surprised as everyone else by the snap election announcement. Yet Jeremy Corbyn hit the campaign trail on Thursday with some vigour, talking about bringing down the establishment at least and crushing the rigged system that runs Britain at the moment. Yet, like much of his leadership of the party, it didn't quite get off to a smooth start and talk has already begun moving on to what will happen if when Labour loses this election. So, Jim, can you just outline Labour's message and approach to this election? They've got seven weeks to come back from a minus 24-point lead on their party's rating and Mr Corbyn's disastrous leadership ratings. Well, they say that the darkest moment of the night is just before dawn, or at least the Corbyn camp might say that at the moment, because it certainly looks pretty dark and bleak for them if they were to take opinion polls seriously, which I think they should be doing in this case. And when they found out the news on Tuesday, they had no candidates in place. They had no election slogan in place. They have no money, although that will be resolved when the unions cough up millions in a few weeks' time, which they always do. And so they've been taken by surprise. They have no choice other than to say... Yeah, we're up for the fight. We love it. They obviously backed the removal of the Fixed Terms Parliament Act because if they hadn't done so, they'd have looked ridiculously fritz because who would turn down the chance to overturn the government and replace them? It's just it doesn't look like that's very likely to happen. So this approach came in Jeremy Corbyn's speech in Westminster on Thursday where he gave this policy light, I think it would be fair to say, address, which was all full of cosy rhetoric for Corbyn and his supporters about how they're going to do things differently and clearly that's the way it's going to be it's let Jeremy be Jeremy as the approach has been discussed. Yeah absolutely so I was at the launch yesterday and Jeremy Corbyn was there and he gave what seemed like a relatively short speech and I have to say I've seen plenty of speeches by Jeremy Corbyn where he seemed really peevish and kind of a bit boring and like a sort of second-rate geography teacher. On this occasion, he had fire in his belly. He sounded quite passionate. And to be honest, his message was very clear. And from the perspective of the left of the Labour Party, they think that Ed Miliband and Ed Balls tied themselves in knots by trying to be all things to all people and trying to cost every policy and trying to be both left-wing and also centrist at the same time. And it was a sort of Robin Hood speech. It was very aggressively anti-the rich. He used the phrase that rich people leeching off workers. It was real class war stuff. It went back a long way. And I ran into Jacob Rees-Mogg afterwards, who's the, the venerable right-wing Tory backbencher who dresses like an Edwardian gentleman. And he said, Corbyn's speech was so old-fashioned it made me feel modern. <laughs> 
<laughs> from the Honourable Member for the 18th century. Henry, do you think this message will have much cut through with voters? Because it struck me that most people in Britain don't really care or think about politics that much. I'm sure most of them won't be aware there's an actual election on. For a little while yet, it won't sink in. And people who care about overthrowing the establishment elite are probably already in the Labour Party or campaigning for the Labour Party. So the danger with this is... It's just a core vote strategy, if even that. Yeah, look, the central political issue of the day is Brexit. Jeremy Corbyn didn't really mention that in his speech because Labour is split. It doesn't have a particularly strong position on that. There are issues on which Labour is strong where there is real public anxiety. And minimum the NH- wage. The minimum wage is one where increasing it, which is a Labour policy, would be popular. But look at the NHS, look at social care. This is something that comes up when you ask people how they're going to vote. They are worried about the pressure on the services. School cuts is another example of a Labour issue, the housing crisis in some parts of the country. The question really is if the people who are worried about those things, whether they're going to give Jeremy Corbyn a fair hearing and when is he going to get the chance to give that message to a large number of people? I mean, the TV debates would actually be one opportunity for him to do that if he gets that chance. The slight issue they've got is getting that message across, Jim, because Jeremy Corbyn said gave a good speech and I'd say they probably won the air war of yesterday in terms of who's cutting through all the noise. But the people around him who will have to reinforce this message day in, day out on radio, newspaper interviews, TV, are not quite so adept. And there was an early car crash interview from Dawn Butler, and she's a North London MP, former Corbyn frontbencher and an ally of the Labour leader. And she went on the Radio 4pm programme and accused Costa of tax avoidance and had to later apologise, because I think she meant Starbucks at that point and got the coffee shops mixed up. And she said, I think, 16 times rigged system and claimed Theresa May has rigged this election by calling an election. I think the reason we have Dawn Butler on the airwaves not sounding very impressive is because if you think of the number of MPs who've resigned from Corbyn leadership since he took over a couple of years ago, they have been left with individual politicians in the shadow cabinet who are not very experienced at the cut and thrust of having to go on the state programme or having to make speeches in public and having to be scrutinised at a really tough level in terms of the details of their policies. Whereas a lot of the politicians of years past and new Labour, they've been around long enough to know you can't walk into a TV studio not really knowing your sums. But just going back to something you said earlier, Seb, you said there wasn't much policy in the speech from Corbyn yesterday. Now that is true and there wasn't any new policy but I think we he has do announced know policy. He announced there. loads of policies. They announced eight policies over Easter while I was on holiday for a fortnight. And when you look at them, they're going to ban fracking, free school meals for primary schools, a five hundred billion pounds infrastructure investment, ending grammar schools, ten pound minimum wage, tax transparency, ending privatisation in the NHS. There's a whole massive list of stuff. And there was some polling, I think, by Comres last weekend suggesting that some of these individual policies were quite popular. But what we know from Ed Miliband back in 2015 is that you can put forward policies that on their own are popular at a granular level. But politics is something very different to that. It's about the feel people have for individuals and a feel for a party. Do they look like the kind of people you want running the country? And do they look coherent, organised, professional? And there are questions over Labour in a big way about that at the moment. Yeah, I think Jeremy Corbyn, you could compare and contrast him with Nigel Farage and UK. They both want to claim that there's some kind of rig system which needs to be overthrown. Corbyn is not prepared to do the same level of media engagements to hit the airways with much regularity as Farage. And he's also, when he makes his point, he's not as clear as Farage has been for a decade or so. He doesn't manage to hit the talking points to leave you with a clear message.
I think the other macro issue as well here is that the society that is portrayed by Jeremy Corbyn, particularly in that speech yesterday, is a society where people are pretty miserable. It's quite and a dark their vision of Britain, actually. And they're going to food banks and they've got no hope and they're being leached on by their managers or owners or whoever. There's no sense of aspiration or that actually there may be a reasonable number of people who are doing okay and just want some reassurances that the government's on their side, but they don't really want class war and they, they don't want directors being cut at the knees. He should be able in some ways to speak to that because he was asked about Islington North, his constituency, and he said, well, look, there are people who have cappuccinos every day and there is poverty as well. And, and that's a constituency where Tony Blair's lived, where Boris Johnson's lived. People from that area are not necessarily out of touch or don't necessarily lack a national understanding. And his inability to speak to that whole constituency is tricky, I think. Let's just move aside to another Labourist topic, Jim, which is the Unite leadership battle. And this matters because Unite the Union is one of the last big unions behind Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn's leadership. Now, a lot of the other trade unions in Britain have moved away or have certainly given very weak support towards Mr Corbyn. And Len McCluskey, who's running for re-election, if he doesn't win and if Gerald Coyne, his main challenger, does win, then after a potential Labour election defeat, which, is, as we heard earlier from Matt, sounds almost inevitable could mean that Mr Corbyn does have to go. But there's been some very rum goings on this week in the Unite contest. Yeah, the first thing that I will say about this is that we are talking at lunchtime on Friday and the result will probably be known by Friday evening. So by the time people listen to this, you will know whether Len McCluskey or Gerard Coyne has emerged. You can give us the, the two scenarios for our listeners, <laughs> the alternate United. reality. And there were those claiming yesterday that maybe Gerard Coyne was nudging ahead. I heard from a United source this morning that Len McCluskey looked more likely to win. So we won't do the mugs game of trying to predict it. The two scenarios are, should Len McCluskey stay where he is, he is committed to propping up Jeremy Corbyn at least until around 2018, one would think. If Gerard Coyne, who was a close ally of Tom Watson, the deputy Labour leader, and there's a sort of West Midlands cabal of inverted commas right-wing Labour politicians, right-wing just meaning more kind of practical and centrist than others in the party. Should he win, then yes, you now have a lineup of Unison, GMB, Unite, the three biggest unions, the three biggest donors to the Labour Party, all being run by people who wouldn't be happy with Corbyn staying on. So that would be more pressure should Labour lose on Corbyn to go. It doesn't necessarily mean that Corbyn will go straight away. There is no golden rule of politics that you do have to go within hours of losing an election, even though Ed Miliband did in 2015 and David Cameron did after the EU referendum. There have been examples in the past of people sticking around or perhaps post-dating their departure. So in theory, Corbyn could say, yes, I feel I can't stick around forever, but you need another six months of the stability and sense of direction provided by my brilliant leadership. And they're going to struggle to argue with him if, as we think, the grassroots still seem to love him, whether they still love him if Labour loses a general election, I, I've no idea. And finally, Henry, just one last thought on Labour's position this election. Obviously, I think Mr Corbyn is betting on some kind of big awakening in people. You know, as Jim painted very vividly earlier, the society he talks about is one that I'd say some British voters will recognise, but not a majority of British voters. Do you think there's any chance that could get currency and actually that he is right, that we shouldn't take it for granted? I think perhaps the sensible way to play this is to not try and think too much about what the outcome is going to be. I think the 2015 election campaign was dominated too much by journalists and others discussing potential scenarios for the day after the vote. I mean, let's take a look at the policies. Let's see where the manifestos add up and let's see whether they can make themselves look like leadership material in this period. It does look a very hard ask for Labour, but there's almost no point in dwelling on that. 
But you can see that the Tory attack machine is already playing exactly the same game that they did in 2015, which is to say these people can't win an election unless they go into a coalition of chaos with Lib Dems or SNP and just imagine the carnage if that happened. And plenty of right-wing newspapers very happy to put that in lights on their front pages and that will continue for the next seven weeks, I suspect. And that's it for week one of the 2017 general election campaign and this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment with more general election chatter. Until then, you can follow all of our coverage on FT.com in the newspaper and our new election countdown email, which will be launching on Monday, where if you're interested, you can hear what I think on that day's election results straight to your inbox at 5pm. Until then, thank you for listening. 